Friday. It's the 28th of June. I'm Anthony Day and this is your latest Sustainable Futures Report. Welcome. In the week when Network Rail told its staff that if they needed to travel on business, they should not take the train if it was cheaper to fly, I bring you yet more on plastic pollution. It just won't go away. Can we cut carbon dioxide by using direct air capture? Patron Tom de Simone provides us some clues. We look at global heating, heat waves, and melting ice caps. Are the fashion industry and the rise of artificial intelligence working against us? Client Earth had a musical windfall this week. A peaceful protester was manhandled from London's mansion house. They do things differently in Scotland. And it could be okay to eat meat again, as long as it's not made from animals. Now, here's a special announcement exclusively for patrons. I think it's time we got together online to share ideas and discuss pressing climate issues. I'm going to set something up and I'll publish details to all patrons via the Patreon site very shortly. If you'd like to become a patron and support the Sustainable Futures Report with as little as a dollar a month, please go across to patreon.com sfr for all the details. Have you been watching the BBC's War on Plastic? The last episode was this week and you should be able to pick it up on BBC iPlayer if you're in the UK. In case you don't have time to catch up on iPlayer, here are some points that I picked out of the last two episodes. First, they looked at wet wipes and surprised many people by revealing that most of these products are at least 85% plastic. They visited a sewage farm in Bristol, where 16 tonnes of wet wipes had been extracted from the drains over a three and a half day period. Apparently this is normal. 11 billion wipes are sold each year in the UK. The programme contacted the principal manufacturers of wipes, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson and Kimberly Clark. The first two did not respond, while Kimberly Clark offered to arrange an interview but then changed its mind. In a previous episode, we mentioned the vast amounts of abandoned recycling discovered in Malaysia. Local authority recycling bags made it quite clear that this rubbish had come from the United Kingdom. The programme took the bags back to the local authority in question, who were quite unable to respond and terminated the interview. We've heard about microplastics, and the programme looked at polyester and acrylic clothing, and how these fabrics shed fibres every time they're washed. A single wash could release 700,000 fibres, and while most of these will make their way into the oceans, they discovered there are more particles in the atmosphere than in any fish you may eat. There are plastic fibres in rainwater, which are shed from clothing. These particles are found everywhere, and are the type of particles that are capable of deep lung penetration. The long-term health effects of this pollution are not yet known. In the latest episode, the programme visited the INEOS Plastics Production Factory at Grangemouth in Scotland. There, they produced between 60 and 70 billion plastic pellets, or nurdles, each day. Let me just repeat that. 60 or 70 billion plastic pellets are produced each day. 
They have a special fleet of ships which bring fracked gas from the United States as the raw material for production. Apart from the gas, the energy requirement for the plant is equivalent to the electricity consumption of Edinburgh, Glasgow and Aberdeen combined. It's unsurprising then that the plastics industry accounts for 15% of global carbon emissions. Plastic production is expected to increase by anything between four and six times by 2050. The reaction of the plant director to the problem of plastic pollution was that it could be curbed by recycling. In his view, chemical recycling would be practical within two or three years, allowing scrap plastic to become raw material in the circular manufacturing process. We learned that plastic toys, particularly those given away by restaurant chains like Burger King and McDonald's, cause recycling problems. It says on the pack that they can be recycled, but a spokesman from the Recycling Association said that in practice they are often made from different plastics bonded together, and while each could be recycled, it is simply not cost-effective to break down these toys and separate the materials. These toys have to be manually separated from the waste stream, otherwise they contaminate it. We were told that McDonald's is the largest distributor of toys in the world, and a straw poll of parents and children revealed that toys given away with a meal are likely to be thrown away very quickly. Two schoolgirls raised 160,000 signatures on a petition asking for these toys to be stopped. Having no reply to letters, the programme team took them to McDonald's HQ to deliver the petition. They asked for the sustainability director and were told someone was coming down. He proved to be the security manager, who escorted them off the site. Nice one, McDonald's, to do that on primetime nationwide TV. They did eventually invite the girls back in to leave the petition at reception, but that was hardly a PR triumph. Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall visited Environment Secretary Gove twice during the series and made him aware of the plastic pollution problem and its international dimension. At present, producers pay 10% of disposal costs and local authorities pick up the rest. Gove agreed that producers should bear 100% and provided for that in his waste and recycling strategy. That is not yet legislation. We need to be sure that such legislation goes through. The series ended with a call to take it back, hashtag take it back, to take back plastic to the supermarkets with your message written on it about what supermarkets should be doing about plastics. The closing shots of the programme showed celebrities, including Sir David Attenborough, writing out their messages. While researching this piece, I came across a statement from the Recycling Association called Don't Dismiss Recycling Exports on the Basis of a Few Bad Apples. The statement includes, The export of recycled materials has a place in part of a global economy, but these need to be high-quality materials. After launching its Quality First campaign more than three years ago, our membership has committed to producing a high-quality secondary commodity and wants the rest of the supply chain to work to the same goals. This means that manufacturers, retailers and local authorities all need to commit to producing a high-quality product for use by both UK and export recyclers. 
News that Malaysia is returning containers and materials back to the UK and other countries shows the need for joined-up thinking to achieve this. Recycling Association Chief Executive Simon Ellen said, We are entering very difficult waters. From the photos I've seen of the material being sent back to countries around the world, it looks like the mixed supermarket films that are collected from the curbside collection schemes by local authorities. These particular materials are so variable and difficult to separate and recycle that we have a stark choice now of whether to stop collecting them altogether or move the material down the waste hierarchy and incinerate them while recovering the energy. The longer-term solution, of course, is for the producers not to produce them in the first place. A trip around any supermarket fruit and vegetable aisle has me shaking my head in disbelief at the plethora of unnecessary plastics protecting the produce. The Recycling Association is against illegal exports of general waste, rubbish and poor quality materials to other nations. That is why we launched our Quality First campaign three years ago to push for materials to meet the legal specifications of the importing country. Our members want to trade quality secondary commodities to these nations. It was claimed this week that the fashion industry creates a bigger carbon footprint than the whole of the aviation industry. Sounds like a shocking statistic and makes a good headline, but is it true? It appears to come from a 2017 report from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which says total greenhouse gas emissions from textile production at 1.2 billion tonnes annually are more than those of all international flights and maritime shipping combined. Incidentally, it goes on, hazardous substances affect the health of both textile workers and wearers of clothes and they escape into the environment. When washed, some garments release plastic microfibers, of which around half a million tonnes every year contribute to ocean pollution, 16 times more than plastic microbeads from cosmetics. Trends point to these negative impacts rising inexorably, with the potential for catastrophic outcomes in future. This was picked up by the Environmental Audit Committee of Parliament in its report Fixing Fashion, Clothing Consumption and Sustainability, which includes 18 recommendations. There's a link to the document, which includes the government's response to each point on the blog. A wide range of issues is covered. Here's recommendation 15. The government must end the era of throwaway fashion. It should make fashion retailers take responsibility for the waste they create by introducing an extended producer responsibility scheme for textiles and reward companies that take positive action to reduce waste. A charge of one penny per garment on producers could raise £35 million for investment in better clothing collection and sorting in the UK. This could create new green jobs in the sorting sector, particularly in areas where textile recycling is already a specialist industry, such as Huddersfield, Batley, Dewsbury and Wakefield in West Yorkshire. The government's recent pledge to review and consult on how to deal with textile waste by 2025 is too little too late. We need action before the end of this parliament in 2022. The government declined to impose the one penny levy, and generally rejected all the committee's recommendations on the ground that existing measures were adequate. Mary Cray, MP, committee chair, said, 
The government has rejected our call, demonstrating that it is content to tolerate practices that trash the environment and exploit workers despite having just committed to net zero emission targets. Ministers have failed to recognise that urgent action must be taken to change the fast fashion business model, which produces cheap clothes that cost the earth. Another source of carbon footprints that you might not immediately think of is AI. Yes, artificial intelligence. According to the MIT Technological Review, training a single AI model can emit as much carbon as five cars in their lifetimes. How can this be? The story is based on a paper published by researchers at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The paper specifically examines the model training process for natural language processing, NLP. No, not that NLP. The subfield of AI that focuses on teaching machines to handle human language. In the last two years, the NLP community has reached several noteworthy performance milestones in machine translation, sentence completion and other standard benchmarking tasks. OpenAI's infamous GPT-2 model, as one example, excelled at writing convincing fake news articles. But such advances have required training ever larger models on sprawling data sets of sentences scraped from the internet. The approach is computationally expensive and highly energy intensive. Hence the conclusion that training an AI model could release as much CO2 as the lifetime emissions of five American cars, including the emissions from their manufacture. But do we need an AI model that can write fake news? How about one that can write podcasts? And one that can listen to them too? And now for a change of air. DAC, Direct Air Capture. Patron Tom de Simone draws my attention to Climeworks, a direct air capture company. This is geoengineering, or negative emissions technology, a process which takes CO2 from the air and either stores it or sells it for commercial use. In common with carbon engineering of British Columbia and global thermostat, which is very coy about its location but is probably in the United States, this organisation emphasises the fact that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has said that cutting carbon emissions on its own will not be enough to avoid the 1.5 degree warming threshold and that carbon extraction from the atmosphere will be needed as well. CO2 is used in carbonated drinks and you may remember that there was a shortage last year. It's also used in fertilisers, plastics, synthetic fuels and horticulture. With the possible exception of plastics, all these uses release the CO2 back into the atmosphere. The capture may have reduced the production of new CO2 from other sources, but it surely cannot have any significant overall effect. The commercial reality is that it takes energy, and therefore incurs cost, to extract CO2 from the atmosphere and contain it. What makes Climeworks different appears to be that some of the CO2 which they extract is permanently stored. They inject it into underground rocks where it reacts to become an inert material locked up effectively forever. Is this the elusive carbon capture and storage? 
There are still costs involved in this process, of course, but Climeworks' main capture and storage facility is in Iceland, where they can use geothermal energy to power the whole process. Climeworks are offering an offset scheme to travellers. For €7 per month, you can offset 15% of a global average travel footprint, but 100% costs a monthly €49. The Climeworks website has an interesting comparison between storing CO2 by growing more trees, by using biomass energy with carbon capture and storage, BECS, with enhanced weathering and with their direct air capture and storage system. Enhanced weathering involves spreading crushed silicate rocks on the land to absorb and bind CO2 chemically. They found that growing trees and using becks both require very significant amounts of water and large areas of land, while enhanced weathering also occupies land and could change the chemistry of watercourses and be a threat to wildlife. Unsurprisingly, they find that Climeworks' system has none of these drawbacks. Patron Tom saw a post on Twitter endorsing the benefits of the Climeworks system and posed what I thought were some very pertinent questions. One, will it scale? Two, where's the energy coming from to power it? Three, how carbon intensive is it to manufacture the chemicals? Four, can we justify other direct air capture outputs like fizzy drinks, synthetic fuels and so on, given the massive CO2 reductions needed right now? To which the Enigmatic response came, fret less, do more. Hmm. That correspondence seems to work for Exxon in the past, but beyond that we know nothing. We spoke last week about offsets involving trees and how the plantations have been cut down in some cases long before they've achieved their objective. A tree needs to live for a 100 years to offset the persistence of CO2 in the atmosphere. Carbon capture by combining CO2 into rock, must be attractive. Because unlike a tree, it never needs any maintenance or attention. Tom's question is key. Will it scale? I'm sure Drax Power Station would love to know. In Iceland, the right sort of rocks for the sequestration are underneath the capture stations, next to the geothermal sources which power the process. Other regions, like the Vale of York, where Drax is located, may not be suitable. We need systems like these, but they must be regulated, inspected and controlled. We need to verify that operators have extracted what they said they would extract. We need to know that no sequestered CO2 is ever sold more than once to different people. And we surely can't rely on conscience-stricken travellers to fund the technology that's going to save the rest of us. If it works and if it scales, then governments should be taking it over and operating it as part of our armoury against the climate crisis. Let's hope it scales, because Climeworks has vowed to extract 1% of global CO2 emissions from the air. Have you gone vegetarian yet, like all responsible environmentalists? No, neither have I. Consultants A.T. Kearney have written a paper in which they suggest that a number of meat alternatives are evolving, each with the potential to disrupt the multi-billion dollar global meat industry. They report that according to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, nearly half of the worldwide harvest is required to feed the livestock population, which consists of about 1.4 billion bovines, a billion pigs, 
20 billion poultry and 1.9 billion sheep, lamb and goats. Agricultural production directly for human consumption accounts for just 37%, representing the second largest harvest consumption block, ahead of biofuel, industrial production and others. Thus, most of the harvest is fed to animals to produce meat, which is finally consumed by humans. Clearly, this is not an efficient way to feed the global population, which is expected to grow from the current 7.7 billion to some 10 billion by 2050. The authors calculate that we could feed around twice as many humans with today's global harvest if we didn't feed livestock, but rather consumed the yield ourselves. They also suggest that solutions for increasing the efficiency of conventional meat production have been almost exhausted. Vegan and vegetarian meat substitutes have been around for many years and high-protein insects are a significant element of the diet in many parts of the world. Now, wholly plant-based products are available which look like, taste like and have the texture of meat. Impossible Foods meat-like products are available in over 6,000 restaurants in the US. A company called Just offers scrambled eggs and a whole range of egg dishes without eggs. Beyond Meat claims its sausages, patties and mints can be found in over 33,000 grocery stores, restaurants, hotels and universities. Clearly, it will take time to scale up production to a level which will significantly replace farmed meat, and I've not been able to find information about the relative costs of these products. Nevertheless, the revolution has started, and Kearney concludes that by 2040, the market for conventionally produced meat will have fallen by over 33%. I'm sure there were no veggie burgers on the menu at the Mansion House Banquet in the City of London the other night. There was a band of Green Priest protesters, ladies in long dresses, who invaded the event shouting down the speaker and handing out leaflets about the climate crisis. Government Minister Mark Field pushed his chair in front of one of the ladies, shoved her against a pillar, grasped her firmly by the neck and manhandled her out of the building and into the street. To their shame, some diners applauded his action. To her credit... As soon as she heard about the incident, Prime Minister May suspended Field from his post. Whether Mark Field was angry at having his meal disturbed, angry because the speech by Chancellor Philip Hammond was interrupted, or cross because he didn't want to face up to people warning of climate catastrophe, we shall probably never know. When Philip Hammond resumed his speech, he remarked that it was ironic that such a protest should take place in the week when the Prime Minister had committed to a 100% reduction in emissions by 2050, something which he himself opposed, by the way. Let's just look at that legislation again. Here's the full text. Amendment of the target for 2050. Section 1 of the Climate Change Act 2008 is amended as follows. In subsection 1, for 80%, substitute... 100%. Bit short on detail, don't you think? In other news, in Bihar, one of the poorest areas of India, 49 people died on Saturday of heat stroke in just 24 hours, with temperatures in Bihar hovering consistently around 45 degrees centigrade. Hospitals were inundated with people suffering from heat stroke. 
The death toll has since risen to at least 60 and with many heatstroke victims still in hospital is expected to rise further. 45 degrees centigrade is 113 Fahrenheit, by the way. The Guardian and other papers published a picture of scientists riding their dog sleds out across the ice sheet in northern Greenland. The dogs are wading through ankle-deep meltwater. Meanwhile, Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic have refused to sign up to an EU document setting out a net-zero carbon emissions target for 2050. On the other hand, an in an ethical investment operation by the UK's largest asset management, Legal and General Investment Management, has dumped shares in a string of US companies it has deemed climate crisis laggards, including oil giant ExxonMobil and insurer MetLife. Six House of Commons select committees have announced that a Citizens' Assembly on the climate crisis will be set up later in the year. It's the second of the three demands made by Extinction Rebellion. Mrs May has already addressed their first demand for a zero-carbon Britain, although she didn't go as far as their third demand, which was that this should be achieved by 2025. Last week I spoke about New Zealand's well-being budget. Richard Lane tells me that Scotland has a national performance framework setting out a range of non-economic measures of its worth as a country and charting its progress to improve them. There's a link on the blog, and the blog, as you'll remember, is all the W's, sustainablefutures.report. And finally, David Gilmore of Pink Floyd has just sold 120 of his guitars and decided to donate the proceeds to a good cause. This means that Client Earth receives £17 million. I've mentioned Client Earth several times previously and its actions against the British government for not acting to clean up illegal levels of air pollution. James Thornton, Client Earth CEO, said, I'd like to express my deep and heartfelt gratitude to David Gilmore for this utterly remarkable gift. David has a long history of supporting charities and I am honoured that he has chosen Client Earth to benefit from this landmark auction. Client Earth is working across the world using the law to fight climate change and protect nature and this gift will do an enormous amount to support our efforts to ensure a sustainable and hospitable planet for future generations. And on that note, I leave you for another week. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. And as promised, there'll be another episode next week and it'll be about rare earth. Until then. <laughs>